Well, good morning. It's good to see y'all all here. Uh, all you braving the weather out there, great is your reward in heaven for uh, braving it to get to church. Uh, and if you didn't come, then shame on you. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. Uh, we'll be in the 19th chapter uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to take a break this morning in the next two weeks uh, from the book of Acts. Uh, and last week we finished up Acts chapter 13. Uh, we'll pick back up there after Easter. Uh, but the next three weeks we're doing a series in which we've just called The Weekend. Uh, and so what we're doing is uh, each Sunday we're looking at uh, the three days of the weekend of Easter. And so this morning we're looking at Friday, so Good Friday. Uh, next Sunday Luke will preach uh, on the Saturday, the, the grave, the tomb. And then obviously uh, the next Sunday will be Easter Sunday. We'll talk about the resurrection. So that's the next three weeks. So this morning I'm going to be talking about uh, the cross, the Good Friday, if you will. Uh, and so while you're flipping there, a couple of things. First of all, uh, Ryan, I mentioned it at the end of the service, but tonight is our family meeting starting at five. I'm really excited about it. I hope you make plans to, to be here for that. Some exciting news from the Next Point team of, of where we believe God is leading us as a church and as we as churches, we can partner and, and continue to move forward in that manner. So please make plans to be here. They've worked hard, prayed hard, and they're excited about sharing uh, where God's leading us with you guys. And so the second thing is, is out in the lobby, uh, we have put together a 14-day reading plan leading up to Easter called Journey to Easter. And so uh, we are encouraging you to, to grab one of those. It's in the foyer on the table with the books and the tracks and stuff like that. There's just a printed out piece of paper of 14 days of reading. And to accompany those readings, uh, we recorded short little videos that will be posted every morning on the social media. Uh, just kind of give a synopsis of what the reading is that day as the church we're reading uh, through those together. And so that'll be uh, starting tomorrow morning. And so pick that up uh, in the in the foyer. If you're not following us on social media, that's where those videos will go to through Facebook, Instagram. I'm sure they'll be on YouTube as well. But anyway, so that's what we're kind of some things that are going on uh, reading plan. So John chapter 19, when we get here, uh, Jesus is about to go to the cross into which uh, we are entering, as I said, entering to the uh, the Easter season, man, we've been getting the, the hill ready for us in the hill. Uh, Casey came up the other day and we bushhocked down. Then I came up yesterday morning and began to cut the trail. I just get excited about this time of the year as a church. And if you haven't, if you've never been a part of us in the hill, man, I want to encourage you to be here and pray now. If you look at the forecast, it looks like it's raining on that day. So I began to pray uh, for, for that, for a dry weekend for Friday and Sunday, because we plan to do an outdoor service again. And and so anyway, uh, if you have never been to Ascend the Hill, we, we start at 6 and we start at 7. We have two different times, and I will go ahead and tell you this. If you can't be here by 6, then don't come till 7. Uh, the reason I say that is, is uh, once we start, we usually don't let anybody in just to be free from distractions, right? So I don't want you to show up at 6.05 thinking you're going to get in, and I tell you, hey, you got to wait 55 minutes. So I'm going to tell you, heads up, if you can't be here by 6 or before 6, just go ahead and make plans to be here at 7. Everybody with me? Cool. Uh, so well, what it is, if you're not familiar with it, is the really just a, uh, a, an immersion into the final hours, stages of, of life of Christ, where we begin our time here in the uh, sanctuary, uh, just a moment of reflection, a moment of preparing our hearts, and then we walk out the back doors, and there 
Uh, there will be a, the upper room scene set up, if you will. Uh, there's no live action, uh, or like we're not doing dramas or anything like that, but it's, it's an individual walk. Uh, I'm really excited this year. Uh, all of the devotions that you'll read through, so as you're walking through each station, there's a devotion that's been written to each station to kind of help us think through things. And what's really exciting is this year that every single one of those devotions was written by a church member. A uh, pastor didn't write any of them. And so I'm really excited about that. And so as you're walking through, you're actually being able to hear and being led by your fellow church members of walking through a Sunday. So I'm excited about that. But anyway, what it's like is you walk from the upper room to the garden, uh, to the trials, the mock trials. This year we're doing uh, Peter's denial. We were kind of walk through and then eventually you make yourself through, you get to, you get through the scourging and to the cross. So it's just a moment for a time for us to, to actually immerse ourselves into Good Friday. Uh, we fast forward to Easter often, as we should at celebration, but there is, no, there is no resurrection without a death. There is no payment for sin without a body that was crushed. And so we take a moment as a church to think through that. And so it's an opportunity uh, for us to do that individually. But also, if you know somebody in your family or in your friends who may be cynical and maybe they don't want to come to church, man, there's no greater gospel presentation for somebody to walk through the actual pages of Scripture and actually seeing them uh, as much as they can in their life as that. And so I just invite people to come. I'm excited about it. Anyway, I got to get started. I would remind you in Acts chapter 4, and he said, Justin, you said we're done with Acts. Well, I'm not ever done with Acts, but in Acts chapter 4, uh, this is whenever uh, the church persecution is about to begin and the, the, the apostles get arrested and they get freed and they, get, they go together to their other the believers and they begin to pray. And I want to remind you of the words that they prayed and it's Acts 4 verse 25. It says, who through the mouth of your, they're praying to God, it says, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves uh, and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against us and his anointed. Verse 27, for truly in the city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, and here it is, to do whatever your hand had planned to predestine to take place. And so when we're entering into this Good Friday, whenever we're walking into this passage, the reality is when we think about Good Friday, when we think of even John chapter 19 or prior, it's very easy for us to focus on the physical suffering that Christ endured. Because it is a he had a physical body that was broken. There was actual blood that was shed. And obviously our eyes should pay attention to the physical agony that our Savior endured. It's also very easy to focus on the, the, sinful, the sinfulness of the people, of the murders, his evil acts. It's, it's very easy for us to focus on the sinful acts. But here's something I want to implore us with or to, to lay before us is that the New Testament forces us to see deeper and higher to the sovereign. See, in Good Friday, it's very easy for us just to focus on the physical sufferings or, or the sinfulness of the people. But I want us to do this morning is to, to see the sovereign hand of God, as in, in Acts 4, to do whatever your hand had planned and predestined to take place. Right? And so whatever means what? Whatever. So if a, if a, spol a soldier spits on the face of, face of Jesus, whatever. Whatever was going on in, in John chapter 19, whatever was going on in the passion of Jesus Christ, it was working to the, to the sovereign plan of God. Ultimately, it boils down to this. 
from the cradle to the cross to the crown, all went according to plan. From the incarnation to the cross, to the empty tomb, to the ascension, to seated at the right hand of the Father, everything went according to God the Father's plan. Which means that God takes the worst of evils and uses them for the greatest of good. I think about the most evil thing that humanity could ever do. I think about in our context today, what's the most evil thing that, that marks our culture, right? The most evil day in human history is whenever we crucified the pure, perfect son of God. The worst of evil to bring out the greatest of good. And the other thing I want you to see is that all through this text, that God is not reacting. He is sovereignly ruling. And so this morning, I want to do something a little different. I'm going to read a lot of Bible verses. Because here's what I want us to see. That even when Pilate flogged Jesus, when the soldiers mocked him, back when Judas betrayed him and even decided that he would trade him for 30 pieces of silver, to when the disciples fled, to whenever they, they, they put a cross on his back and they led him to his death, whenever they gave him sour, or even when they, they divided his garments or they gave him sour wine or when they didn't break a bone in his body, whenever they placed him in a tomb, all of it was already planned by God the Father. Nothing was done by accident. Nothing happened by happenstance, if you will. When we get to John chapter 19, I want us to think in context of whatever your hand had predestined to take place. And so let's read John chapter 19 and just bear with me. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I think it's just important because if I want us to see that what I wanted to, this morning to be is, and it should always be this way, but almost everything that comes out of my mouth is God's word to preach the sermon. Not Justin's thoughts, not Justin's interactions, but God's word preaching to us in the idea or the truth that God was sovereignly ruling all things, even on Good Friday. John 19 says, Then Pilate, took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they, came up to, they came up to him saying, Hell, king of Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may uh, know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Check out Jesus' response. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he, delivered, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. 
But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. He said, he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out and bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put on the cross, put it on the cross. It said, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, he took, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but, it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple of whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it bore witness, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, and that you also, that you also may believe. For these things took place, uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him in whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds in weight. 
so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with spices, as uh, is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray, Father, we love you. God, we pray now as we look at this Friday, this day in which our Savior willingly laid down his life for his sheep. And God, we pray that today as we look through it, God, we don't see it as a series of unfortunate events or things that are connected, God, but everything that happened on that Friday that we look back on was going exactly according to your plan. That you're a God who sovereignly rules the universe. And God, we pray that today that we see uh, the great depths you took to offer salvation to all who would believe. God, I pray that today as we look to your word, God, that you will draw those who have not trusted in Christ as the Savior of the world, as the only one, only name given that man may be saved. God, that today they would put their faith and trust in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Thank you for reading along with me. I thought it just was appropriate for us to read the whole Friday account. We're on Friday, so let's look at what Friday was. This is John's account of Friday. And so we see that Jesus moves from, from before Pilate to the crowds to carrying his own cross. And, and again, I want us to see that this was God sovereignly ruling. He wasn't reacting that God was sovereignly ruling. And we see it because we have this beautiful thing called the Old Testament that is full of prophecy about the Messiah. We, next Sunday would be Palm Sunday, right? Uh, April 1st, we're having an Easter egg hunt after. So I hope you make plans to be here for that. But we remember Palm Sunday because that was the day when, when Jesus rode in on the donkey into Jerusalem. Uh, and, and what's really awesome about that, that was even prophesied that, that when, where he would ride in on and what he would ride, what he would ride. And, 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 and like, if he can, if he can prophesy or God can already tell us when the Messiah is going to ride in and what he's riding in on, man, it's incredible. Actually, some people say there's over like 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. And like the, the rate, like the odds of that is one in 83 with a hundred zeros attached to it for a man to fulfill one of those. Uh, and so we see them over and over again, these prophecies being fulfilled. And so what I want us to do this morning is look at everything that happened on Friday and see how God had already prophesied that that would happen. Are you with me? Uh, and so that's, we're going to be at a lot of verses. I told Kennedy on the computer this morning, hey, I'm sorry, there's a bunch of verses. But what I wanted this morning to be is God's word truly speaking to us. And where I don't add much of anything to it, I'm not going to add a lot of commentary to it. And we're just going to walk through Friday and see how it was going exactly according to how God had planned for it to happen. Matter of fact, when we get to John 19, the, the mock trials, if you will, are over. The disciples have deserted Christ. The Judas had betrayed him. What's really crazy, and I've already got ahead of myself, but the betrayal of Judas and the really what jump starts this whole thing getting crazy. Remember, like the last night when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, everything, uh, you see agony in Jesus when he gets to the garden, but things hadn't really 
picked up yet. But then what, what, what is it that spurs everything in action when Judas comes in and betrays Jesus in the garden and he betrays him with a kiss, right? Even that in Psalm 41 is, is, is prophesied that, that, that Judas, that, that Jesus's friends would betray him. Matter of fact, in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, we even see that he was going to do it for 30 pieces of silver that we see in the gospels, that Judas took 30 pieces of silver in order to betray the hand over Jesus to them. Not only that, but we understand that at this point, all of the disciples had deserted Jesus, that Jesus was standing alone. In Zechariah chapter 13, it says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's what Jesus actually quotes to his disciples in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. It says, then Jesus said to them, you will fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of that flock will be scattered. And it only took them about 30 verses later, and it says this in Matthew 26, 56, and all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, then all the disciples left him and fled. So when we get to chapter 19, we see in verse 1 that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. This is the scourging. This is the beating with a cat of nine tails. It's the image that we often think in our mind of, 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 of Christ being tied up to a whipping post and being beaten. And so it says, at this point, Pilate took him and flogged him. And what we see, and I think it's awesome in Acts 4 that we read, it was Pilate and Herod were conspiring to do whatever. So it was Pilate, if you will, who flogged him. In Mark 14, 65, it says that they began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, taunting him, say, prophesy. And they received him, they gave him blows. But we read this in Micah chapter 5, verse 1. It says they would strike him with a rod on the cheek. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says, I give my back to those who strike. This is the prophesying of the Messiah as in the picture of I give my back. I think about the, the scourging. He was tied up with his hands exposed where his back was given. It's even prophesied in Isaiah that the Messiah would come and ultimately be to be whipped, to be struck, to be flogged. As I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. In Isaiah 52, verse 14, it says, his appearance was, was marred beyond human resemblance. So we need to see in this passage that it's in this climactic point on Friday where Pilate says, I'm going to take him out. I'm going to flog him. What we read is hundreds of years before God the Father in his orchestrating plan said, listen to me, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to give up his back for them to whip him. This is not reactionary. This is not something that is happening. Yes, we see the physical sufferings, but above that we see the sovereignty of God ruling this thing. Verses 2 and 3 says that they mocked him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. We see Pilate flogging. We see him being mocked. 
And we know it did end here. We know that in other accounts, when, they're on the, when he's on the cross, they're mocking him. Well, in Psalm 22, 7 and 8, we read this. All who seek, see me mock me. They take their mouths at me and they wag their heads. He, he, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him from the delights in him. And all this series of things that it looks like man to control where Pilate says, I'm going to flog him and the soldiers are mocking him. We read in Psalm that God said, listen to me, they're already going to mock the Messiah. They're going to cry out, let his God save him. Verses 4 through 15, we see that the Jewish leaders reject him. Whenever Pilate says, this is your king, he's not my king, let's crucify him. Psalm 118, verse 22 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And Isaiah, hundreds of years before this happened, says, thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel, and his holy one, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation." That God had already told us hundreds of years prior that the Messiah comes, the Jewish leaders are not going to receive them. They're going to reject him. They're going to despise him. So it looks like man's winning. It looks like they're crushing the Savior. It's like they're trust, crushing the Son of God. But we see even in the beating that God had already sovereignly decreed that this would happen. In the mocking we see the picture already played out, leveled out, that says, this is what's going to happen. Verses 16 and 17, we see that he was led like a lamb to his death. It says, so... Whenever the Jews wouldn't budge, it says, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the school, which at Aramaic is called Golgotha. At this point, Jesus had been beaten past the point of resemblance of who he was. The Roman executioners or the Roman soldiers who would perform the, the beating or the flogging were ultimately trained to beat somebody to the closest point of death without them actually dying, but many times many of them would die. Organs would be exposed, face would be the cat of nine tails would have bones and metal and things in it. He's endured that. They took a crown of thorns and they placed it into his brow. They mocked him with a purple robe. His own people said, crucify him in another account. They chose Barabbas, a murderer, to be free, not the innocent son of man. And most of the time, people that got through beating or they got the final sentence to, to be crucified, they would lose their mind at this point. So much so that oftentimes they would literally have to grab the person and like literally drag them to the place 
They'd be so out of their mind, rather in pain or to the idea or the reality of the cross that they would have to grab a hold of them and drag them. But here, look at the, look at the words here. It says they, they delivered him, they took Jesus, and he, he went out. He's not panicking. He's not fighting. He's not resisting. He is simply walking in obedience. Somehow. And they gave him a cross. We don't know if it's like half the cross, the full cross. We just know he's carrying his own tool of execution. But he was led. He had to be dragged, but he willingly walked. Which reminds us of Isaiah chapter 53, 7 and 8. says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened out his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that... Before it shears is silence, he opened out his mouth. Check that. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. You notice how fast he went from, from judgment, he went from the courtroom to judgment to his death. Even Isaiah says how swiftly this thing was going to happen. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of his people. In this picture, we don't see Jesus fighting or resisting. We see him ultimately continue to walk in humility, carrying his own cross, which this morning I thought about, Genesis chapter 22, in the picture of Jesus carrying his own cross. In Genesis chapter 22, is the story of Abraham and Isaac, this long-awaited son that God had promised Abraham, but or Abram, but it just seemed like it wasn't going to happen. And he finally gets him. He finally gets his boy Isaac. And God says, now I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to sacrifice your own son. I want you to put him, bring him to the top of the mount, and I want you to put him on the altar, and I want you to sacrifice him. And we pick up reading in verse 4. It says, on the third day, that's funny, huh? On the third day, Abram lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the, his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Look at this, you ready? And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. You have the picture, the son is when it's carrying the wood. It's the father who's going to do the killing. So they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abram, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abram said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they both and they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place of which God had told them. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God, <clears throat> seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket, the thorn bush. A ram with the substitute was caught in a thorn bush. The crown of, anyway. Thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. See, this story in the Old Testament, what it does is it points to this day, this Good Friday, that the Son of God would carry on his back the means of which to sacrifice. And it was the Father who was sovereignly ruling the sacrifice of his own son. The Lord will provide. What we see on this Friday is just not random events, but it's something that's been foreshadowed since, since Abraham. Something that's been promised all through Scripture. Not only was he led like a sheep to his own death, but verse 18 tells us he was crucified with transgressors. Look at verse 18. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And it's interesting that they wanted crucifixion because that was a, a Roman way of execution, not a Jewish way of execution. The Jewish way of execution would have been stoning, right? And, and the picture of, of stoning is that instead of being lifted up, they would be thrown down. Instead of being lifted up, they would be thrown down into a hole. That was how they stoned that. There would be a big hole like you see it in Stephen, right, in Acts 7, that Stephen would have been taken outside the city just like Jesus was taken outside the city here. But they would take him outside the city, and they would have pushed the, the person being executed into a hole, and then the boulders would have been thrown on them. And if that didn't kill them, well, oftentimes the, the fall itself would kill them into the hole. And then... They would push boulders in. If that didn't kill them, then the whole town would start getting stones and throwing at them to kill them. And that was the Jewish way of execution. But here we see a Roman way of execution through crucifixion. Not a throwing down, but a raising up. Not a throwing down into a hole, but a raising up on a hill. This is incredible imagery that we see all throughout Scripture, of this, this raising up of providing healing, this raising up of seeing salvation, of, this, of getting rid of the curse, if you will. Jesus himself mentions it in John 3, 14. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Which is a weird thing to think about. What is he talking about? Well, I'm glad you asked. In Numbers chapter 21. This is a crazy story as well. This idea of lifting up. Numbers 21, verse 4, so come up on the screen, I'll read through verse 9. It says this, From Mount Hord they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. Hello, story of Israel, story of us. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Man. And look at God's condemnation or his curse. It says, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And I'm glad, <laughs> hey, 
I hope God, anyway. <laughs> Among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have, what, sinned, and for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Pray for God, pray for God to take away the condemnation that he has given us because of our sin. That's what, that's what the people were asking Moses to ask God. God, remove your, your right judgment upon us. Will you please remove it and check out what he does. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on the pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Man, what a beautiful picture of the very curse because of man's sin that God made a remedy. God made a fix of that curse by, by this picture of this serpent on that's raised up. That God and ultimately was providing the salvation from his own just condemnation. In Psalm 22, which is even crazy, the Romans weren't around yet. Crucifixion wasn't happening yet. We read this in Psalm 22, verse 14 through 16. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth, for dogs encompass me, and company of evildoers encircles me, and they have pierced my hands and my feet. Sounds a lot like crucifixion. It looks a whole lot that we see this picture or story or this image of salvation in the New Testament of this idea of this the Savior being raised up, not thrown into a hole, but being raised up, and all you have to do is look upon him to trust in God's provision for what he says will save you. You just look upon it and you'll be saved. It looks like God's already given the blueprint all throughout the Old Testament, even in Psalms so much that the Messiah, his hands and his feet would be pierced as in imaging, a, <laughs> imaging an execution style that doesn't even exist yet. Isaiah 53, 12 says that he was numbered among the transgressors. He was, he was crucified, what, between two criminals. He was numbered among the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many, so he was crucified with transgressors. The next thing we see, starting in verse 23, is that the soldiers divided his garments. See, now it looks like things are getting crazy. So right now, it looks like some looting's happening, if you will, like th something crazy happened and people are, get something free, like we're going, that's what, what it looks like is happening. That he's dying and now they're taking his clothes, evidently they had stripped his clothes off and they put the crown of thorns and the robe on him, but evidently they had put them back on him, but some, I don't know when that happened, they put them back on him and now he has, I mean, he has a couple pieces of clothes, maybe some shoes and anyway, they left, anyway, they are dividing it. They are, uh, we see it in verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they divided them into four parts. 
So there were four soldiers, and each one got their own part. Somebody got a sandal, another person got a sandal, somebody got a top, somebody got a bottom. I don't know. Well, they divided the garments. But then there was one that says that there was a tunic that was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. They said, we're not going to tear it, let's cast lots for it. Well, it seems like this is just a total random thing. Seems like just some crooked soldiers that just unfortunately got their sinful actions documented in what we call the Bible. But in Psalm 22, verse 18, it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Even something that doesn't seem significant, we see God's already said, This is what's going to happen. Verse 28. We read, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, here's an indicator to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood, stood there, and they, gave, they put him a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And he received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Again, seems insignificant. I would have been thirsty too. He had already... He had already uh, denied access to like painkillers, if you will. And now he knows his word because it's his word and it's prophesied that they would give him sour wine. So he says, I thirst. And they offer him the sour wine or vinegar. You may read in the Old Testament of the prophecy. And he takes it. We read that in Psalm 69, 21. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And then... He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. As in, he said, it's finished. I lay down my life. Nobody has the power to take it. I give it up freely. And evidently, others were still alive. Were they stronger than Jesus? No, think about how strong Jesus would have been. Not like just big muscles, but even in his strength, there was no, no sense of fallenness of humanity. And my muscles get weak and tired, and there's limitations that I have just because sin, the fall, affects every part of the human experience. Jesus had perfect humanity. It wasn't because he was weak. It was because he was God, and he says, you know what? It's done, and I gave up. He gave up his spirit. And so not only did they divide his garments, not only did he drink sour wine, but not a body, a bone was broken in his body. We see that in 31 through 37. So as they have preparation, they want people to die quicker. So what they would do is, because ultimately you, you, the way you die uh, from, uh, from crucifixion wasn't from the pain. It was ultimately from drowning in your own blood. It was breathing in and not being able, it was, and so they were living too long, so they would, they, what they would do is they would lift up, right, and be able to breathe. So to make them die earlier, quicker, they'd go and break their legs so they couldn't jump, stand up anymore. They couldn't catch a breath. And so they go to do this, and then they get to Jesus, and he's already dead. So they thrust the spirit aside, and it says blood and water comes out. And, but it says this is to fulfill a scripture. And what was that scripture that might be fulfilled? Well, I think it's specifically in Psalm 34, verse 20, and it says, He keeps all his bones, but not one of them is broken. But I think there's a greater story, just kind of like, not greater is not a good word, a bigger story, if you will, that we see uh, in, in Abraham and Isaac. We see it in the serpent uh, that's being raised up in the wilderness. And it's the story of the Passover. This is a beautiful thing. If you don't know what the Passover is, Passover was actually what they were 
as Jews, they were celebrating this week. Uh, and, and what it was, it was a celebration of what, how God had delivered them back in Egypt. Right? So if, you don't, if you're not familiar with scriptures and, and things like that, I just want to bring you up to speed real quick. Uh, God called, Abr- called Abram to himself and made a great people. Through Abraham's descendants, they ended up in Egypt. <clears throat> While in Egypt, they stayed there for a long time. Egypt got a new pharaoh that didn't remember the good old days, and they put Israel in bondage. So for 400 years, God's people were in bondage in Egypt. And then God raises up a man named Moses, who was a murderer, but then he, he fled, and on the backside of the desert, God called Moses to go and free his people. Whenever Moses came back to free his people, uh, he knew that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened, as God said, I will harden his heart. But anyway, he gets there, and God performs a series of plagues, or a series of big acts to try to get the Pharaoh to change his mind. There's some crazy things, like turning the river to blood, and like, gnats and like just weird stuff. But the last one was the death angel was going to come and he was going to kill the firstborn son of all that were there. But God gave special instructions to Israel and it became known as Passover. And it told them the specific instructions, take this animal without blemish and uh, without, without any, anything wrong with them. And you will kill that animal. You will eat the animal, but you'll take the blood of that animal and you will, and you will wipe it on the doorpost around the door of your house. And so after you do this, go inside, enjoy dinner with your family. And when the angel comes by, if he sees that blood around the doorpost, he will pass over your house. That's where Passover came from. Everybody with me? Passover. And so after this happened, it came through and everyone who, uh, who, who obeyed the Lord and did that, their son was saved. And everyone who did it, specifically Egypt, firstborn son was killed. And so after that, year by year, they began to celebrate Passover. And there were specific instructions that we don't see originally in Exodus, but we pick it up. And obviously, it was, it was there, but it just not read out. But this is what we read in, in Exodus 12, 46, whenever Moses is instituting Passover. And he said, and it, it shall be eaten in one house, you know, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. Check this out. And you shall not break any of its bones. Like, the weight of that in this picture that just a couple days earlier to this, Jesus met with his disciples to celebrate Passover, and he says, man, I have so desired to have this meal with you. They were celebrating this past event that God had done, and they did it every year, the Passover. And then Scripture says that he he took the bread and he broke it and he took the wine and he poured it and said, this is my blood that's going to be shed. Ultimately, what he was teaching them that night is what we've been celebrating, which is a foreshadow of me. It was a foreshadow of me being crushed so that God will, can save, that God can redeem. So much so that at the cross, we see this imagery that God prophesied, hey, now the bone's going to be broken. But this highest feast, this highest celebration, where we're eating of this animal, eating of this sacrifice that had no bones broken, so did our Savior on the cross, the true Passover lamb. The true one, the, the, the truly the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Knowing that, he died. And they couldn't leave him there because the events of the weekend, so they take him down, and a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who is a very rich man, has a tomb that nobody's ever been in, and they decide, him and Nicodemus decide to bury Jesus in that tomb. Again, it just seems like well, that's what you do with a dead body. Isaiah 53, 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And then he'd be buried with the rich man in a borrowed tomb. I hope in the time that we've spent literally just ultimately reading God's word more than anything, is that I have forced us to see God's hand even on Friday. That this is not an accidental thing that's happening. Jesus didn't accidentally find himself in the hands of the Jews or the Romans. He submitted to them. He actually told Pilate, you wouldn't have any authority over me if it wasn't given to you. After they beaten him to the point of recognition, they put a cross on him. He didn't fight. Man, think about this. He didn't fight. He didn't struggle. He didn't, he didn't plead. His pleading was in the garden whenever he pleaded with his father to let this cup pass. But his father said, no, this is the way. And he said, not my will, but yours. The pleading was done there. And they strap a cross to him and he carries it up the hill and he gets there and they, they, they lay him onto the cross and they, they put nails in his, in his wrists and to his feet and the pain was excruciating. The, they, were, they were mocking him. They were tormenting him. They, they raised him up and they jarred him into a hole just like Moses raised the serpent. The son of man was raised up that all who look upon him and trust can be freed from the poison of snakes and sin, if you will, that if we just look upon him and the very first words of his, out of his mouth were not this hurts or God come get me. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then I began to ask, why? <laughs> why Good Friday? Why, did God, why, why would God do this? I'll go ahead and tell you, I will not kill Evie, Emma, or Rhett for you. I will not let them go through some type of suffering so that your days get better. Why would God, we read the story in Genesis 22 and we sympathize with Abraham getting the call to kill his son he longed for. We sympathize with that as humans, right? It's just a foreshadow of the depths of the, what God the Father took in crushing his son. His only begotten. Why? Because we see that it wasn't by accident. We see that it wasn't just by chance that Jesus found himself where he was, but it was sovereignly decreed by the ruler of the universe each and every moment that he walked to Golgotha was planned and predestined as, as they prayed in Acts 4 to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. Well, what's the purposes then? What does God achieve for us? What does he accomplish for us by the crushing of his son? That's the good news. Hey, listen, if you haven't listened to anything I said yet, listen to this. God 
in crushing his son accomplished so much on our behalf that we could not on our own. No matter how good you are, no matter where we come from, no matter how smart we are, God the Father on Good Friday accomplished, listen to me, the death, the cross, it was necessary. Yes, the tomb was necessary, the resurrection was necessary, but the death was necessary because in, in the Son of God dying, it accomplished specific things on our behalf. I'll just give you some of them, but I don't have time. But this is a great book for it. You may not be able to read it, but it's The Passion of Jesus Christ by John Piper. And what he does is he writes 50 reasons what God accomplished or why the purpose is God crushed his son. Like 50 implications for all of us that we can read through and say, this is why Jesus had to die according to his father's plan. It's, and I'll, you take a picture of it in a minute. Maybe Luke would be proud of me for letting you look at a book. Uh, What does the death accomplish for us? Listen to me, it, it absorbed the wrath of God. It absorbed the wrath of God. The wrath we deserve is more than serpents falling from the heavens. It's an eternal damnation in a place called hell. Eternally separated from the one who created us. See, God, at the cross, we see, we see grace. Man, do we see grace at the cross, but we also see justice at the cross. I say, Justin, how do you see justice? It's because in one sense, we see God's love for humanity, but we also see his hatred for sin. Because he's a holy God, he's perfect, and he has a righteous indignation towards all things that are sinful. And Scripture says that there is a, a wrath that was built up. There's a wrath that he has to pour out upon sin. But thankfully, John tells us that he became the propitiation for our sins, which doesn't mean that he just, he just cancels it. What it means is he, 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 he moves it to himself. As in the wrath of God that he had towards sin, instead of it being placed on us, the propitiation means he's satisfied, he absorbed it. He doesn't cancel it, he absorbs it on himself. So in the death of Christ, one thing that we see God accomplishes now that he can freely welcome the sinner into his presence. Why? Because he, he, justly, he justly poured out his wrath upon his son so that he can now look at me and you and go, now you can come into my presence. Now you can have a relationship with me. Now you can know me as Savior. What did, he, what did his body being broken do for us? Is that it gave us a way to the Father and not to not be, to be burned up. In his life, we say this often, he lived a representative life, but he died a substitutionary death. Physically, he died the death that is in the wrath of God. We see God's love for sinners at the cross. He does cancel the legal demands of the law that, that we have. As in he fulfilled it, so therefore we don't have to fulfill it anymore because it's been fulfilled. He's represented us. He's canceled out. He became a ransom for many. He, he offers forgiveness of sins. His death is the basis of our justification. 
In doing so, he abolished rituals and laws for the basis of salvation. What did he do in a physical death is now you and I don't get saved by rituals or laws or rules. We get faith by looking to the one who was raised up for the forgiveness of sins. He died to, to bring us to faith and to keep us faithful to make us holy, blameless, and perfect, to obtain us all good things, to reconcile us, to deliver us from the present evil age, to break the bondage of fear in our rulers, to break hostility between groups of people, but ultimately to show us the worst evil is meant by God for good. What's the application of that is, I hope that you see the love of God. How can I say this? That you and I can see the love of God in the person of Christ. Is that a correct way to say that? That you can see the love that God has for you in the person of Christ, who is the son who he crushed. And if you haven't trusted, maybe, I don't know what's keeping you from from believing. I implore you to, to trust in him. It's easy just to look and believe and receive. And the very condemnation that you're now in can be, you can be freed from by the very Savior that God has sent. It's a crazy thought. I can't quite fully understand it, which is perfectly okay. It's the good news about the gospel is that it's, it's easy enough for the child to believe, but it's complex enough for the greatest minds to never fully understand it. And if we ever get to where we do, then we may have an issue within ourselves. But we believe in him. And here's something that helped me. It doesn't help take away the evil that happens in my life or in your life. This is for the believer here. It doesn't take away suffering. It doesn't take away, because we live in an evil world. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Coming to know Jesus, if somebody told you that it's going to be happy life, man, we've got a long road to glory. It's a straight path, but it's long. You with me? Like, it's, it's straight, guy. It's, it's, it's straight, but it's long, and it's full of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows and everything in between. That's Christianity, not, not this other side of if, if, you have, if you're having a bad day or bad luck, then you don't have enough faith. You hear that, then to get behind me, Satan. But that's the truth. That's the reality is that that's what life is. And here's how this, this truth of God, Daniel, you can come up. I think I was going to tell you that earlier, but I just got carried away. Um, this idea, this truth that God is sovereignly ruling all things. Did you, <laughs> I just thought about this. The, uh, the garments that were, they cast a lots for, when you think about scripture, you usually just think about like Jews. That prophecy was carried out by Romans, 
by the way. So God even used pagan Romans to carry out his plan. Anyway, that if God can take the worst of evils, which is this day, the Good Friday, and bring out the greatest good, then that becomes the lens in which we view, interpret, decipher our lives. So he said, just what do you mean by that is, whenever things happen to me and I automatically begin to think, oh God, why me? I automatically think, well, well God must be upset with me or, or God's not on his throne anymore, he's missed this or, or this, that, and the other. And we begin to interpret God by our circumstances, then we will always end up at a place of despair and frustration. Instead, I would submit that we view the world through the lens of Calvary. And on the evil, most evil day in human history, God brought the salvation for all humanity to all who would believe. And what seems like a bad day to me, if you will, what seems like a bad situation or bad circumstance, it, it fails in comparison to the gravity of Good Friday and the extremity of Good Friday and the sinfulness of Good Friday, if you will. And if God can take the most evil day in human history and bring out salvation to all who would believe, then he could take whatever I'm walking through, I believe it, for his good. What's the Good Friday take home is that is the lens in which I view everything through now. Because waters are going to come. They're going to rise. People are going to wrong you. You're going to get a call, bad call from a doctor. You're going to, like, things are going to happen. And I choose to view that through the lens of Good Friday, where the, where the father chose to crush his son for the salvation. And so he can use cancer. He can use deception. He can use spitting on the face of the Messiah, if you will. He can use all those things for his greater good and his greater glory. He doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste sickness. He doesn't waste pain. He doesn't waste struggles. He doesn't even waste your sinfulness and my sinfulness. He uses them for his greater good and his greater glory. I'm thankful that I have a God that I serve, that nothing throws him off his throne, and there's nothing that happens that he has a sovereignly decreed that it happened. Even if it doesn't make it make sense, it gives it purpose and order. And I can't live life without purpose and order. I may not know what that is, but I believe that there's a God who is orchestrating things to a final end. That final is the culmination of Christ where everything will return to what it was originally created in the glory of God and the fellowship with his creation. I believe that everything's working towards that end. I can't draw the picture of why it does that or how it does that, but it does. Why? Because his word says it. And I believe his word. How can I believe his word? Because it's been faithful. It's been proven. By golly, hundreds of years before this ever happened, even thousands of years before this ever happened, God said, this is what's going to happen. And it happened to the T. If that's the case, then I can trust him with anything else. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for Good Friday that in, in essence, it doesn't seem that good. We see the sinfulness of man. We see the sun of God, the spotless lamb crushed. We see darkness as he fully bore the weight of our sin.
But God, we understand that it was good because we knew Sunday's coming. God, I pray for anybody in here in this room or even online that has not trusted in Christ Jesus as the Savior of the world, God, that today they will. God, that they will trust in Christ Jesus for salvation. God, for the believer in here who maybe we hadn't even thought about Easter, may today you, you shake us to our core. May we remember, Father, the depth that you took to, to display your love for us. God, for the person in here who's walking through hardships, walking through tough times, walking through high waters, if you will, may, may you give us an image of, of Good Friday. And may we learn to navigate our struggles through that perspective. Increase our trust and faith in you. God, be with us during this time as we remember the one who suffered in our place, bore the wrath of God and purchased redemption for all who would believe us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can stand.